Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. The Blues Brothers. Well, me and the Lord, we've got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. Well, if you've seen the movie, The Blues Brothers, you know that's kind of the, uh, the tagline. It's a running joke throughout the whole movie. Um, and what so, makes it so funny is that um, how in the world could two ex-convict wannabe musicians possibly be on a mission from God? I mean, that's what makes it so funny. It's ridiculous to think that God could use these two inept, obnoxious guys for anything. But here's the deal. As unlikely as it might seem to you, You are on a mission from God. You and I are on a mission from God. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, He has given you a mission. Matthew 28, 20. It's the very last words Jesus shared with His followers before He left them. Go to the people of all nations and make them my disciples. That's our mission. That's it. It's the only mission He gave us. Go and make disciples. Now, many of you, you hear those words, and that just strikes terror and fear in your heart. (laughs) Because you think to yourself, how in the world could I do that? In fact, actually, a recent Barna survey, um, 53% of those who identify themselves as evangelical, born-again Christians, only 53%, that's barely more than half, feel that they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. Barely half. And these are people who say they believe in the gospel. And I think many of us say things like, well, my faith is a private matter. I don't want to intrude on anybody else. I don't want to offend. I don't want to oppose. But mostly, mostly what it's really all about is, deep down inside, it's a fear of rejection. It's a feeling, if I share my faith, what will people think of me? How will, it, how will they treat me? How will it affect our friendship? Now, if you've got those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of fears, let me tell you, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. For 2,000 years since Jesus gave that, I think believers have struggled with that whole idea. It's a little scary to put yourself out there. And in fact, some 1,400 years even before Jesus, a very similar, similar mission was given to a man named Moses. God said to Moses in Exodus 3.10, Go and bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. It's a very similar message. Go, go, go to my people. Go get my people. Now, if you're like me, kind of, you, you, know, you think of Moses, you think of Charlton Heston. Anybody else? You know, this big, strong, you know, powerful figure, you know, the flowing beard, holding two clay tablets, you know, just got him out there, and, you know, so it is written, so it shall be, you know, and everybody cowers in fear. But if you read the account in, in, in Exodus, that is not the Moses of the Bible. In fact, I'd like you to turn. Exodus chapter 3, if you would, if you want to follow along. If you didn't bring your Bibles with you, there's some uh, probably on a seat next to you on page 56 if you want to follow along. Listen to this. You may may know this story a little bit. You know, Moses stands in front of this burning bush, and a bush is burning, but it doesn't burn up. And so he goes near to see what it's all about. And as he gets there, this is the thing that God says to him, beginning in verse 9, chapter 3. He says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. 
I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now you would think that would be enough for Moses. But no. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 1. But Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to them, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it down on the ground. Moses threw it down on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. (laughs) Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Okay, now you would think, okay, that's got to do it, but no. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you, you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if I were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Now, if there was ever someone who was reluctant to take on the mission, it's Moses. And he wasn't this big strapping guy. He was a man with fears. And Moses had all kinds of fears. Fears of rejection. Fears of disbelief. But God had an answer to every one of his fears. And what we're going to look at together this morning is, what is it that keeps us? What are the fears that keep us from sharing our faith? What's at the heart of them? And what is God's answer for all of it? Where does all of this come from? Well, I think one of the things is we fear rejection because of our past. Sometimes that's what it is. We think that somehow our past disqualifies us from speaking on behalf of God. Moses' very first reaction is really, really revealing. Look at what he says. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, that's a very revealing question. And to understand it, you've got to know a little bit about Moses' background because he had kind of a sketchy background. See, you may, maybe if you 
grew up in Sunday school, or, or maybe you heard the story about Moses and the basket and the bulrushes. Do you remember this story, anybody? Well, here's a brief thing. Moses' mom, because there was a death sentence on all male-born children, put him in a basket, hid him in the reeds on the river Nile. The Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter came one day and found the basket and actually adopted Moses as her own. So Moses became the adopted grandson of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And, and he grows up in the palace. And he's got all the rights and privileges of one of the Pharaoh's family. He is not an Egyptian. He is a Hebrew. But he is living all of the wealth and all of the power of the Egyptian king. And one day, and, and by the way, because the Hebrew people are slaves to the Egyptians at this time, one day Moses goes out and he sees one of the Egyptian slave drivers and he's beating on one of the Hebrews. And so the Bible says he looks this way and that, <laughs> making sure the coast is clear, comes up behind, and he kills the Egyptian slave master, buries him in the sand, covers it over, walks away. <whistles> you know, nothing's happened. Next day, he goes out, and he sees two of his fellow Hebrews, and they're arguing among themselves, and they're kind of coming to blows and, and fighting and arguing with each other. And he comes and he separates them and says, hey, you two are brothers. You shouldn't be fighting with each other. And listen to what one of them says to him. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And all of a sudden, he knows the jig is up. And he's got to flee. And he runs. Because now there's a bounty on his head. Because the Egyptians have found out. And the Hebrews know. And he's not, an, he's not an Egyptian, but he's living in the Egyptian palace. And he's not a Hebrew, but he's living like an Egyptian. And he's, he's a man without a country. He's a man without a people. And he's got nowhere to go. So he runs off and flees to the desert. And while he is there, he meets a gal. Gets married. And he gets to work for his father-in-law, Jethro. And for 40 years, that's all he does. He is a shepherd on the backside of the desert. That's his life. And it's while he is out there on the backside of the desert that God appears to him and calls him. Now think about that. Here is a guy working for his father-in-law, tending sheep in the desert. And the last words he heard from any of his fellow Hebrews is this, who made you Lord and judge over us? And God appears to him and he says, I am making you their leader. And I got to believe in the back of his mind, those words are still echoing. Who made you? Who do you think you are? And that's what, it's, that's what he says. Who am I? Who am I? I'm a shepherd. For 40 years. Now, if you would come to me 40 years ago when I was living in the palace and I had some influence and some connections, yeah, maybe then I could have done something. It's important to know God does not call Moses when he's at the top of his game or when everything's working out. And that is very often the case. God does not come to us when we got it all figured out and it's all working perfectly. Very often he comes to us at our lowest points and it is there that he calls Moses. And here's the point. Here is the point. God's presence is far greater than your past. God's presence in your life is greater than anything, anything in your past. He's got a second question, by the way. He asked God, now, what should I say if they ask me your name? Now, he's kind of in a roundabout way of saying, I don't know enough about you to be your spokesperson, God. 
He doesn't come right out and say, who are you? What he says is, if they ask me who you are, what should I say? But in essence, that's what he's saying. I don't know enough. My past disqualifies me. I don't know enough to speak on behalf of you. Why are you calling me? Because God's presence in your life is greater than your past. It is not about you. It is about what God has done for you. God's answer is, I will be with you. I will be with you. And when he says, well, who should I say it is that sent me? He says, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, that is the very first time in Scripture that God reveals himself by this name, his personal name. And it's a derivative of the Hebrew for the verb to be. And it's got all kinds of meaning packed into it because it's in the present tense. And in essence, what God is saying, in fact, it's it's sometimes translated Yahweh, but we really don't know how it's pronounced or really what it is. But it really literally means, I am who I am. I am that I am. I am because I am. I am what I always have been. I am what I always will be. Past, present, future, I am. It is a huge revelation. And what he's saying to Moses is, that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. I am, and I am with you. God is greater than your past, than your past mistakes, than your past failures, than your past successes. He is greater than your past religious experience. Because he goes about changing lives. And in truth, your past your past may be the very most effective way you can share your faith because your past is a part of your story. In fact, the whole Old Testament is about the past. (laughs) Your past, your story, fits in with God's bigger story. And he has placed you where he has you. And the most effective thing you have is to tell your story. It is personal. It is relatable. Let me ask you, can you think of one person in your life? Do you know anybody, anybody at all in your life that is still a slave to their past? Do you know anybody like that? Who is still bound by past mistakes or past failures or past things they cannot forgive? Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody who might benefit with you sharing a little bit of your past. See, your past is your story, and it fits in God's bigger story. In fact, I want to give you an assignment this morning. When you go home this afternoon, you got homework, okay? I would like you, because I don't think, I bet very few of you have actually done this. Go home and write out your story. And just three, you can do it three paragraphs. My life before Christ, how I came to Christ, the difference he's made in my life since. And he's got to do it in a hundred words or less. I don't, you know, not a big volume, you know, not chapter. And just, if you could do it on one page. Do this, do this, because, because there will be opportunities that you will have to share. And all you got to do is tell your story. But you have never thought it through long enough to be able to put it down into a, into a two-minute presentation. You can't tell your story if somebody said, hey, I got, I got two minutes. Tell me your story. Because you've never done So this is your homework. Go home and write out your story. In fact, we put a link on our website. If you go to my, www.mystory.engate.org, this is what I'd like you to do. There's gonna, we're going to put guidelines up there. How to tell your story. And just some real guidelines that you can put this down. Put it down to 100 words or less. And then if you'd like, 
email it. There'll be a link there to email it. If you already know how to do it, if you write, write it out, send it to me. My story at engate.org. Because you need to know how to tell your story. You need to be able to do it in a very short time because people don't want to listen to what you did when you were in second grade, okay? <laughs> I'll tell you very briefly my story. I was pretty much born and raised in church. I grew up going to church before I knew what church was. And here was my thinking for most of my growing up life. Although nobody said this, somehow in the back of my mind, I thought it was all about what I was doing and what I was not doing. And I did this and I didn't do that. And it was all about how well I kept in line and how much I did for God's kingdom and how much I shared. And it was all about what I did. And somewhere, somewhere along the line, God got through to me and he made me understand it is not about what you have done. It's what I have done for you. And the message of grace transformed my life because all of my life was about religion and doing and not doing. And I began to understand God's done it all. I can't do enough. And that's when I truly put my full faith and trust in him. Okay, that was more than 100 words. But I embellished, okay? I'm a preacher. I get to do that. But try and write it out so that you could just, in a brief two-minute thing, be able to share, hey, listen, this is where I was. This is what I found out. This is what changed my life. Do that, okay? That's your homework assignment. Do it. Put it on the website. Send it in. And, uh, and if you need help with it, you know, we'll help you do that. But send it to us, okay? You need to be able to tell your story because your past is a very, very important part of what God has done in your life. Now, you think that would do it for Moses, but it doesn't. And there's another area, I think, that gives rise to some of this fear of rejection. I think sometimes we fear rejection because of our own insecurities. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It's really deep inside because our insecurities give rise to imagined objections, imagined obstacles. And that's what happens with Moses. Moses protested again. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? What if, what if, what if, what if? See, our imagination drifts to the worst case scenario. And it's always what if, what if, what if. And most of those things will never happen. In fact, 90% of them will never happen. But we worry about them. We have fears about it. And it's really our own insecurities. It's our own, our own fears, our own fear of rejection. Maybe you struggle with this. Maybe, you know, you have this what-if syndrome, okay? And you find it going over and over. Every time you think about something, you think, well, what if, what if, what if, what if? You know what they have found? Researchers have actually found, no lie, Wall Street Journal, January 18, 2008. They have, researchers at Yale University have identified what they call the worry gene. It's true. It is a variation of a gene known as BDNF that's active in the hippocampus. It is the area of the brain that is involved in thinking and memory. It's a mutation of a gene. It's in your DNA. Now, some of you are thinking that. Boy, you're worrying right now. Do I have that worry gene? I don't know. (laughs) One of the researchers said this. He says, if that's one thing, you you can change it. He said, give yourself 20 minutes a day to worry. Go ahead, 20 minutes, start the clock, worry all you want. Worry about everything you possibly can. But at the end of 20 minutes, turn off the clock, walk away, and stop worrying, okay? (laughs) Get it out of your system. Some of us, we are so paralyzed by the what-ifs that we never take a chance. What if I make a mistake? What if it doesn't work out? How, what will they think of me? What will they, what if, what if, what if, what if? Listen, the only way I know to guarantee you will never make a mistake is to never try. 
That's the only way. The only way to guarantee you will not make a mistake is to never try. And a life that is filled with what ifs ends with a whole lot of what might have beens. The only way to guarantee no mistakes is to never, ever try. It is risky. When we were dating, my wife and I, um, I had this great idea. I was going to teach her to ski. You know? So we went snow skiing. We went up to the mountains, and um, you know, we got on the chairlift, got her up to the top, started coming down. I said, okay, now, when you get on the hill, here's what you do. You kind of make this V-shape with your skis, and you kind of put your weight on the one ski, and it'll turn you that way, and weight on the other ski, and it'll turn you that way. And, and so, you know, she was game for this, okay? So she got in there, and she got the, you know, got the little wedge shape with her skis, doing real good, started to come around, and as she made her turn and started to face straight down the hill, she would sit down. I said, okay, let's try it the other way. She got up, got facing the other way, okay, start turning. In a minute, the skis started facing straight downhill. She would sit down. And I said, you know, at some point when you make a turn, you're going to have to face downhill. You can't complete the turn without going downhill. And she sat there, and she said things to me, and I said things to her, and, <laughs> and I'm not really, really proud of this, but after about a half hour of it, I said, okay, why don't you work on that for a while? I'm going to go ski somewhere else. <laughs> and I left her up on the hill. <laughs> not my finest moment. And, and by the way, because I didn't say this in first service, she is a really good skier, okay? She didn't learn from me, but she is a really good skier. I never told people. Everybody has to, so did she ever learn to ski? Yes, she did. She did. See, a life that is filled with what ifs, those fears that keep us from even trying, always end up with a life filled with what might have been. See, the real issue is not what people are going to think. The real issue is not what it might do to the relationship. The real issue The real issue is our own insecurities. And I want you to know something, because the truth is, God has already given you all that you need to do His work. He's already given it to you. God answers Moses with a question of His own. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? Moses replied, A staff. Now, That's a pretty dumb question. <laughs> I mean, isn't it obvious to God what it is? It's a staff. You know, it, it, isn't that obvious to God? Sure it is. It's obvious to God. It is not obvious to Moses what he has in his hand. It's a staff. It's a stick. Nothing special. Not very impressive. Just a stick. A big stick, but just a stick. Until God does something with it. And God says to him, throw it down on the ground. And he throws it down on the ground, and it becomes a serpent, and he runs away. <laughs> But here's the deal. And Moses understands this, because Moses grew up in the king's palace. See, the snake was the protector god of the pharaoh of Egypt. That's why when you see you know, pictures of King Tut and King Tut's coffin and everything, he's got this crown with a little snake head on the front, on the forehead, because the snake was the protector god of the king. The snake was the protector god of pharaoh. And what God is saying is, I'm bigger than any king. Because then he turns around and he says, now reach out and pick it up by the tail. Now, I am no expert on snakes, but I have watched Survivor Man. <laughs> and you do not pick up a snake by the tail. In fact, you don't pick up a snake if you can possibly help it. 
but you certainly don't do it by the tail. And what he is saying to Moses is, what you've got in your hand is far more powerful than any king of Egypt. What you have available to you, when I'm involved, is far more powerful than any, any possible insecurity you might have. So he picks it up by the tail, and it becomes a staff. And here's the point. Let me ask you another question this morning. What is it that you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? What resources do you have readily available to you that you could use for the work of God? It might be a cell phone. Turned off already, but I know that. But it might be a cell phone with a contact number in there of someone that you need to go and reconcile with. Might be a Starbucks card that you would use to buy somebody a cup of coffee and sit down with them and have a conversation about God. Might be a lawnmower that you have, that you've got a neighbor that is sick and hasn't been able to mow their lawn. And instead of grousing about how unkempt their lawn is, you would go over and mow it for them in the name of Jesus. It might be the back seat of your car that you could offer as a carpool to help build relationships and help other families in the community and carpool together. It might be opening your home and inviting unchurched friends to it and having a party with other churched friends just to build bridges. You see, God has given you everything you need to do His work and it's already in your hands. And the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, what resources do I have that I could use for the work of God? And if you can't think of any, we got a resource center in the back hall. <laughs> and we got CDs. We got music CDs. We got our sermon series on CD now. So you could, if you know somebody's struggling with an issue and we got a sermon series on it, you could give that to them. We're providing books that you could read to better understand your own relationship with God and better share your faith with other people. We got hoodies. We got T-shirts out there. Now, you might think that's crazy, but if you can't talk and you can't speak to anybody, you could wear a T-shirt. We got a T-shirt out there that says, don't go to church. And you don't know the number of comments I got as a pastor wearing that T-shirt. Don't go to church. I thought you were a pastor. But on the back, it says, be the church. You don't think that doesn't open conversations? If you would look, God has given you all that you need to be able to do His work. So what is it that's in your hands? What is it that you already have possession of that God could use? And then there's a third one. I think we fear rejection because of our own limitations. And these might be, not imagine, these are very, very real. An impairment or a difficulty that you have Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor when you, when you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I can relate to that this morning. I am slow of speech and tongue. Please, send somebody else. Many scholars believe Moses actually had a speech impediment. New Living Translation puts it this way. I'm not very good with words. I never have been. I get tongue-tied and my words get all tangled. And many scholars believe he really did have a speech impediment. It might have been an oversized tongue or something that caused his words to slur. might have been a lisp. might have been a stutter. Now imagine that. God chooses as his spokesman somebody who stutters. But I want you to know this morning, God has made you a unique expression of His grace. You are made by God 
as a unique expression of his grace. God does not stop and say to Moses, oh, well, why didn't you say so? What he says to him is, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is just saying to Moses, don't you think I know that? But you are an expression of my grace. Where you are, where you live, God has made you uniquely you. And he has put you in the neighborhood that you now live. And he has put you on the job with the coworkers that you now have. Or in the classroom with the fellow classmates that you now have. And he has put you there because you are on a mission from God. And he has made you a unique expression of that. And whatever your flaws and insecurities, limitations, understand this. God is at work. He says, now go. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. God is at work. See, faith is a supernatural event. It is a supernatural act. It is a work of God. He invites us to participate in it, but ultimately it is He that works in somebody's heart. You are not alone. God is with you. The most frequent command given in Scripture, we talked about a couple weeks ago, is fear not, do not be afraid. And the most frequent reason given for that is because I am with you. I am with you. You are not alone. God is there. And although he doesn't let Moses off the hook, he says, what about your brother Aaron? Okay, I'll bring him with you too. He can speak for you. He knows how to talk. And here's the point. When you share your faith, you're not alone. God is with you. But he has also given you a church family, a community other believers to help you with all of this. Some 18 years ago, we started this church with a dream. And the dream was simply this, that we would be a place where people who don't even like church would like coming to. That we would be a place that even if people didn't believe in Jesus, they would want to come and find out more. That people who maybe were burned by church or turned off by church would come and find a place where they are safe and they are accepted and they are welcomed and where the word of God is taught and explained in a way that it could be understood whether you had any Bible knowledge or not. We designed this church for the sole purpose of reaching out to people who don't yet know Jesus. It is why we exist. We are on a mission You and I are on a mission. And God never lets Moses off the hook. All of his excuses, and when he comes down to the very end, he says, would you just send somebody else? God says, no, but I'll give you somebody else with you. He never lets him off the hook. And he doesn't let you off the hook either. And we have designed this church to be a place where you can invite your friends. Do you know the most unchurched segment of our population in the United States is 18 to 29-year-olds? That is the most, single most unchurched segment of our society. And we've tried to design a worship environment where people like that could come and be welcomed and accepted and taught. A place where you could invite your friends. Inside your bulletin, there's an insert. 
It's a new, new series we're starting, Money, Where Does It All Go? Starting this next week. I can virtually guarantee, in fact, I would, well, I won't, but I'm almost willing to put money on it. Sometime this week, sometime in the next seven days, you will have at least one conversation with one other person that will have to do with the economy. I can almost guarantee that. I won't, but I almost could. And when they do, and when that subject comes up, you say, you know what? Our church, that's such a big issue. Our church has taken a whole month to talk about that. You know what? Jesus talked more about money than any other thing he talked about. And the wisdom that Jesus had 2,000 years ago, if our culture, if our society, if our economics were to follow the designs that he had said 2,000 years ago, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. We wouldn't if we just did it God's way. Now, you don't have to go that far. But you can say, we're going to be talking about that. I'd like you to come. Here, these are the topics we're going to be talking about. Might be helpful to you right now. Your 401k is in the toilet? Maybe we can get some help here. Finances really stretched? You overcommitted with your, your, your credit? Maybe we can help you. You could do this. And by the way, make it a specific invitation. Because so often we say to people, you ought to come someday. And that's like saying to somebody, let's do lunch. You'll never do it. But you say, yeah, we ought to do that someday. Make it a specific. This Sunday, we're going to be talking about that. I'd like you to come. Would you be my guest? In fact, we'll go out to lunch afterwards and talk about it, see what you think. You have a church where you can invite friends and you can be guaranteed that we will talk from God's word in a way that people could understand. And you could help them find God's kingdom for themselves. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.